views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Conversation reparations, conversation reparations, conversation reparations brought to you by the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, the premier group moving the conversation of reparations forward and the work towards reparations forward in the United States. I'm your host, Brother Jumoke Ifetayo. I serve as the Southeast Regional Representative of Incobra. And we're really excited about the show we have for today. Uh, in honor of, uh, I like to say, our story month, uh, February, also called Black History Month. Uh, we thought that it would be appropriate to do a little uh, look back on some reparations, our story, or reparations history, or reparations, her story. And so we're going to look at what I consider, and many consider, a very key and pivotal, pivotal uh, landmark along the reparations journey, which is the World Conference Against Racism, which was held in Durban, South Africa on August the 31st through September 8th in Durban, South Africa. And preceding that, there was actually an NGO conference that preceded that conference. And, and actually, there were several other meetings that preceded that, that, big, that major gathering, as well as several meetings that happened after that. Uh, and we're going to unpack all of that on the show. They, this, uh, the full name of the conference, the UN conference, was called the World Conference Against Racism, Racial Discrimination, and Intolerance and Related Intolerance, Xenophobia. I'm sorry, let me do that again. The World Conference Against Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerance. That was the full title, but it, it became known as the World Conference Against Racism and sometimes just WCAR. So uh, we have uh, one guest on the line, and we were expecting another guest. Uh, right now, we do have on the line Dr. Jewel Crawford, who uh, I'll let her give tell you a little bit about her, but she was very active in the process, in the planning process, as well as she attended Durban, the World Conference Against Racism, as well as she was active in some of the follow-up that happened after that. Uh, let's um, let's go ahead and play that first clip. Or are, are we able to play the clip? Uh, yes. If not, um, Dr. Jewel Crawford, would you just like to just share a little bit about yourself yeah, and your I, connection sorry, to Jamoka, the World Conference? I'm muted. I can play the clip. You want me to play the first clip? Okay, go ahead. Okay, the first one, which is uh, titled Durbin 400. Yeah, I think both of them are titled Durbin 400, but the one that the one is 53 seconds, the other one is like a minute and 20 seconds. Okay. 
So the short one. Get him in, get him in. That sun is hot and plenty bright. Let's get out of business and get home tonight. Get him in. Auctioning slaves is a real high art. In the fall of 2001, the Durban 400, a coalition of grassroots activists from the African diaspora, was formed to take the issue of reparations for the transatlantic slave trade to Durban, South Africa, for the UN World Conference Against Racism, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerances. This has been a paper fight, a language fight, a six-year fight that was initiated by attorney Roger Wareham of the December 12th movement to get one very important sentence into the final UN declaration. This battle has been won, and the United Nations declaration now serves as a catalyst in the continuing struggle for restitution for some of the greatest crimes against humanity in world history. All right. Now, and that clip was taken from a film... As a trailer from a film called The Durban 400, which was again, which is a which which was a group that was organized in the United States to really um, push forward the issue of reparations at this conference. And so, again, we, we're going to move more into this story when we have uh, Dr. Jewel Crawford on the line. Would you just give us a little? background of yourself and how you got connected to the World Conference Against Racism, Dr. Jewel. Okay, thank you, Jamoke, for having me on this evening. Um, I became uh, 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 interested in the uh, World Conference Against Racism, first of all, uh, in my readings as an activist, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X and studying Malcolm's speeches and teachings. And Malcolm always encouraged us to go to the United Nations to take our case of uh, injustice to the United Nations and take it to the world court. And so in the year, I guess it was uh, the year 2000, the year before, I ran into a childhood friend uh, from elementary school that um, in New York City, I was up there uh, in New York, uh, visiting my mother. I live in Atlanta now, but I'd gone up there. And she told me about the uh, upcoming UN World Conference Against Racism. And all I could think is like, wow, that's what Malcolm always told us to do. Maybe we'll have a chance to really do that. So I was later introduced to uh, attorney Roger Wareham, and uh, he had been involved with uh, with with the United Nations and um different committees against racism, and I can't think of all the names of it now, but the Committee Against Torture and uh, different things. And so he and December 12th movement were very, very instrumental in uh, pulling people together to uh, to go to Durban. So it wasn't just you just showed up in Durban in 2001. There were a series of prep comms for the NGO, which is a non-governmental organization, where we were going to be drafting the documents of what our concerns were as people of African descent uh, enslaved in the United States and uh, bring these concerns to the floor of the United Nations. So it was a whole process that we had to go through. And um, with uh, with the help of Roger, you know, I met other people involved in the reparations uh, movement, 
uh, from uh, New York, and then uh, we just got involved in the, in the whole process. So there was a series of steps that we went through for a year or so. And I must give a shout-out to my pastor, Dr. Mark Lomax, because um, I really didn't have the money to go to Geneva to the United Nations at the time, but uh, the church actually supported me financially to be able to go and make these international trips. So um, so I had a, a really eye-opening experience being involved in the whole process. All right. And a little bit about your background, even before you came to get involved with, with, with. Um, I know you said you were influenced by Malcolm, and then you heard about the World Conference Against Racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, um, uh, I have a lot of background, but <laughs> the show's not all about me. But um, anyway, I'm a medical doctor. I'm a graduate of uh, Howard University, so I give a shout out to all my alumni brothers and sisters out there uh, in your listening audience. So I went to Howard University College of Medicine. And um, then I've since lived in uh, New York and Portland, Oregon, and then here in in Atlanta. And uh, I also uh, teach at the medical school here in Atlanta. And uh, I uh, am a family practice is, has been my area of practice. But my focus now is uh, environmental public health, so that's what I do right now. So, um, so yeah, and so and also I look at uh, social determinants of health, which is very much linked with my activism because I look at how uh, and and teach students about how social factors like poverty, like uh, low levels of education. Uh, income, lack of transportation, how all these factors impact people's health. And um, that's also been uh, something else that's been taken up by the World Health Organization, social determinants of health. So that's right in line with things that I've done uh, most of my professional life. Okay. Well, very good. And, and I think maybe um, we may come back and do a show a little later in talking about health and reparations and the impact of uh, epigenetics and the impact of trauma and, as you mentioned, you know, poverty and stress and all of that um, um, white, uh, I don't like to say white supremacy, white so-called supremacy, and how all of that has impacted our health and, and our um, demand for reparations. But as we get back to the World Conference Against Racism, um, let's start out. I thought it would be good just to kind of start out by talking about why this is important or why it was significant. What was the uh, victory that came out of the, the, the World Conference Against Racism? And then we can kind of go backwards and give more history and come forward and talk about, you know, what's happened subsequent to that as well. So let's start out by uh, why, you know, why would you, why, why do we consider um, this gathering in, in Durban in, in September to be uh, important or a monumental landmark along the lines towards reparations? Okay, well, uh, one more thing, uh, Jamoka, before I go into that, mm-hmm. that I just wanted to add about um, work that I've done related to reparations. Um, mm-hmm. One of the brothers that was very active in the reparations movement who is very active, uh, Raymond uh, Wimbush, who teaches at uh, mm-hmm. Morgan State University uh, 
edited a book called Should America Pay? And mm-hmm. this is actually, I guess, the the textbook on where all the scholars have weighed in on the importance of reparations for people of African descent. So I have a chapter in this book called uh, Reparations in Healthcare for African Americans. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's repairing the damage from the leg- legacy of slavery. And a lot of my work was based on the work of a uh, two-volume set that was really a, uh, well, I mean, written by two really genius scholars, uh, doctors Michael Bird and Linda Clayton. Out of, they're out of Boston and Harvard University. And they wrote a book called An American Health Dilemma, Race, Medicine, and Healthcare in the United States. And they have gone into the health of black Americans from the time we left Africa on the slave ships and the things that we died from in route during the Middle Passage and Mafa uh, up until modern times and why mm-hmm. our health has been so adversely affected by all those events and going into exquisite detail. So my chapter was more of a summary of their work, but also with the um, looking at it from uh, from the angle of reparations, why reparations are important and why they're needed. So that that's uh, an important piece of work from from my vantage point as far as the health of black people is concerned. So now back to your question. I'm sorry if <laughs> you would ask it no, again. No, no. <laughs> no, that's a, no, that's important because you know initially when when I was asking you Tia, about yourself, you know, if, you know, people want to. It's good, I think, to, for people to know who you are, a little bit about your background, and, you know, you you just didn't um, come on board this thing. You, you've had some history uh, or some her story around thinking around reparations, even though not even, and through the lens of health specifically. But that, you know, again, I'm glad you did mention that you um, wrote that chapter in, in the book and, and the um, background to that chapter. So I think that was very appropriate. Thank you. So, yeah, so the question was, why, um, what is significant about the World Conference of Racism? What was the, the victory that we say that um, we accomplished during that, that convening? Well, it was really important for the world to recognize our plight. That was, that was the mm-hmm. first thing for, uh, for us to have global recognition of what what we've been through. I don't know if in world history, in the history of of humanity, if anybody has been through the kind of terrorism that we were uh, that we that we were subjected to with the uh, the slave t- trade, where the descendants of um, African people have uh, have experienced. So that was the first thing. That was a terrible thing, just to get the. Uh, it was terrible what happened to us, and then it was monumental to for us to finally have that recognition by all of the governments of the world. And when I walked into that room with the General Assembly, I remember being so surprised because in my mind I'm thinking there were a lot of white people there. And when I saw that the white people were off in like a little corner somewhere because it's not that many white countries compared to uh, countries of color and people of color. So Mm -hmm. it was the European bloc and then the settler countries, you know, the United States, Australia, uh, New Zealand, New Zealand, and uh, those type of places, Canada, where Europeans have gone and settled, 
And other than that, Asia, Africa, Latin America, I mean, the overwhelming majority of the United Nations is people of color. So that was the first mm-hmm. thing I was like, oh, wow. So it was, it was really, it really stood out how um, the impact of the domination of the, I would say, white supremacist countries and the, uh, the uh, unbalanced uh, leverage that they are able to um, levy uh, over the really the majority of the people of the world and that domination so you could just take a look in the room and see that they are actually in the minority and we people of color are in the majority and in fact I don't even use that word uh, minorities talking about black people and people of color here because that's like a mind game to me because they're the real minority. If we talk about white men, we're really talking about a minuscule mm-hmm. part of the, of the global population. So anyway, so the first thing was the recognition of our plight. That was number one. Then uh, the second thing was just the formation of solidarity with uh, African Americans and African people in the diaspora with other people that have been oppressed by the same forces. And so there was a a lot of solidarity there between ourselves and other oppressed groups. But I will say that I thought that black people, and particularly uh, African Americans, even in the uh, Western Hemisphere, would kind of be front and center at this conference because it was about racism and we've been so badly treated. But it was people there with all kinds of stories that were not black. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my goodness, you mean we're not front and center at the racism conference, but the Palestinian people, they were very prominent there. The Dalits of India, which are also known as the untouchables, uh, which are the lower caste of India, which are also very dark people, um, dark um, like African people are and how they are discriminated against. Their discrimination is just horrible. And um, the Roma or Gypsy people were there, and they had they were there with their story, and indigenous people from all around the world that have been trampled upon by settlers coming up in their land and whatnot. I was like, oh, my God, can we, where do we fit in here? <laughs> But uh, but we had we had our say and we were very vocal and um, and and relatively uh, well prepared. What we weren't was on all black people were not in there on one accord though. Um, although I'd say all of us supported reparations, but people came with different um, different agendas and priorities. And you know we're not a monolithic group. It was a, a diverse group of black people, and you got to think as black people that were not just um, racially discriminated against in the in the Western Hemisphere, but all the colonized people of the world showed up. So the um, the UN conferences are divided into the government, which the official UN is just government representatives, and so the non-governmental people, which was us, all of us who were not part of the uh, government delegations were looking to influence the governments of the world. So you have the governments, and then you have the NGOs or non-governmental organizations. And and when I was there, the best of my recollection, it was about twelve thousand people there from all over the world for the NGO uh, 
conferences, portion of, of the conferences, and then the governmental organizations. I mean, we couldn't always get into their sessions because the majority of people, obviously, they couldn't let 12,000 people into the hall. But um, but anyway, because the actual declaration has to be written by the governments. So uh, we had our non-governmental state statement that we worked to influence the uh, the governments to include our concerns. Yeah, so there was, thank you, there was um, uh, on the uh, UN website and um, they had a breakdown of some numbers. So uh, I'll share with some of the numbers that they say. They say that there was 163 countries that were represented. Uh, and this is for the uh, UN summit. And then we'll talk about the NGO summit that preceded it. Uh, there was 2,300 representatives at that gathering. It was of that of those 2,300, uh, 16 heads of state, 58 foreign ministers, 44 ministers, uh, 4,000 representatives from NGOs, and 1,000 um, from different media uh, outlets. Uh, at the NGO conference, they said there was 3,000 NGOs represented. Uh, with 8,000 representatives, so and so with the, with the number that you gave, approximately 12,000 total um, people that were at that um, convening at that convention. So one of the things I know that was a critical uh, highlight in um, at this convention at this gathering was the fact that slavery. Was, the, was declared a crime against humanity. And, and, and in a little clip that you heard, they talked about this one sentence, and that was the sentence that was so important that, that Durban 400 was primarily organized around that to get that particular language in the final outcome document. And um, I'll read uh, briefly the uh, statement. It says that it, the, the conference acknowledges and profoundly regrets the massive human suffering and the tragic plight of millions of men, women, and children as a result of slavery, slave trade, transatlantic slave trade, apartheid, colonialism, and genocide, acknowledging that these were appalling tragedies in the history of humanity. The conference further acknowledged that slavery and the slave trade are a crime against humanity and should always have been so, especially the transatlantic slave trade, because there was some issue about you know slavery was legal at, at that time. So I think that is that this this was very significant that this that that slave trade is a crime against humanity and should have always been so, especially transatlantic slave trade, and that the significance of that, from what I understand in terms of international law, is that that. Um, language allows those groups who have been victims to that it removes the statute of limitations, so that such that the statute of limitations does not uh, cannot hinder uh, a group of people who have been harmed to take their case forward now that those things have been declared a crime against humanity. And uh, yeah. I'll let you um, comment on that. Well, we're 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 at the time where we usually take a break. So we're going to take a short break uh, and come right back, and I'll let you um, respond, Dr. Jewell. Okay. 
You are tuned in to Conversations Reparations on the Black Talk Radio Network. Visit us online at blacktalkradionetwork.com for podcast archives as well as other great programming from other programs. All right, we're back with Conversation Reparations. We are discussing the World Conference Against Racism, which was held in Durban, South Africa, uh, the first one, which was held in Durban, South Africa in 2001, uh, August 31st through September 8th, which was also preceded by a conference of NGOs, non-governmental organizations. And we were just talking about the significance of getting this language in the final outcome document of the UN declaration because the NGOs had their own declaration as well. But we wanted to get this language in the official UN um, document declaration um, of slavery being a crime against humanity. And we had some response on that from Dr. Jewell. Yeah, um, first of all, I think that credit needs to be given to December 12th movement for the mm-hmm. insight to really insist on that. I think that they mm-hmm. really took leadership on making that happen. They understood the significance of that language, that declaring that it was a crime against humanity has always been so. And it was a struggle to get that in there. And a lot of, if I, to the best of my recollection, a lot of the European and uh, I'll call them settler countries did not want to include that language in there, but we were able to prevail. And that was very, very significant because that will stand. That will, that will stand the test of time. We always can go back to that. And even though um, it's been 20 years, I mean, because of the way it was written, was a crime and always has been because what the, um, uh, what the white countries wanted to do was say that, well, at the time, um, it wasn't a crime. And so right. to say, and has always been so, that really puts a different uh, spin on it and is uh, a lot more significant uh, in terms of remedies. And, of course, that leads us into the discussion of reparations because if it's a crime and a crime without statute of limitations, then uh, uh, reparations and remedies are in order to uh, for victims to have redress, and um, that has not. Uh, happen to date, but we're probably closer to it now. Uh, um, we're It's just amazing to me to hear it being talked about at the uh, Democratic uh, national debates and whatnot. I mean, I think the ancestors are having their say, kicking in, you know, all the things we've done mm-hmm. over the decades are finally coming to, uh, to fruition. So uh, because if something is a crime, I mean, you can't just wash over that or sweep it under the rug. You know, crimes have to be uh, crimes, crimes have to be addressed, and uh, justice has to be served. So we're still uh, in that process, but I think we've made uh, good progress in getting closer to reparations. Some people think that we'll never get them, but of course, you know, we always have naysayers. And where will we be? With, you know, if we listen to the naysayers. So <laughs> um, the, it's, it's the visionaries that make things happen, not the naysayers. 
So that, that language is very, very significant, and that was one major victory that we could claim from uh, uh, descendants of enslaved Africans that we could claim from this conference. Yes, and on, on that note also, we, we had wanted to have the representatives from the December 12th movement on this call. Um, we had reached out to them, and, and one of them actually had committed to being on the call. However, um, for uh, whatever reason, I, we will I guess, later find out. But, um, but, yeah, we definitely want to acknowledge the uh, December 12th movement who is based in New York and has, uh, understand, legal consultative status their NGO is recognized at the United Nations and were really the, um, had done the research in, in terms of understanding international law and understanding why that language would be important to, to get that into the document and began organizing what became known as the Durban 400 to, to prepare people in advance of the importance of lobbying to get that language in there. And as a part of that, there were several what was called prep comms um, one was in Santiago, Chile. The another one was, which was for the, and they were based on regions. So Santiago, Chile would be North America, Central America, and the Caribbean. And at that one, uh, you know, again, it, uh, people w went there pushing to say that when we get to South Africa, be prepared. This is what we're taking to South Africa. This language of crimes against humanity. And and then another convention was held at Dakar in Dakar, Senegal, with the African nations. I understand there were some challenges in that as well, particularly um, some of the su southern African nations who kind of pushed back a little bit on compensation. But that that you know most of the African nations were in agreement that that we should move forward on that language. And, and there was another conference, another prep comment they were called in Tehran, Iran, and another one that was held in. Uh, Strasbourg, France. So, so yeah, a and lot of work. In, and, uh, Geneva, mm -hmm. um, and, mm -hmm. and Geneva, Switzerland, I think that might have been one of the first ones. That's the one that I attended. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I didn't have it like that to fly all around the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, I was uh, able to go to the one in uh, in Geneva, Switzerland, where we talked about the uh, the language because the, and the, and that was good. I went to that one because it wasn't just NGOs. The the world body was meeting there at the time too, um, along with the NGOs. So we that was the beginning of us being able to interact uh, with the uh, with the UN delegates. So yes, yeah, so that language is, is remains very very significant. It was significant and, um, that we got it in there. It was it was really a victory, and then it, it remains that because. What that says is, and I, I don't have the wording of the document, but that we are entitled to reparations. And people don't realize that the world body has agreed that uh, uh, descendants of enslaved Africans are entitled to reparations. And so this has already been established. Yeah, I was looking for that language as well because I know that there was some language that, in addition to yeah, I was trying to find that reference, that reference reparations. Um, one section that I, I did find, it says that the conference recognizes that those historical injustices have undeniably contributed to poverty, underdevelopment, marginalization, social exclusion, economic disparities, 
instability, and insecurity that affect many people in different parts of the world, particularly in developing countries. The conference recognized the need to develop programs for the social and economic development of those societies and the diaspora within the framework of a new partnership based on the spirit of solidarity and mutual respect in the following areas, debt relief, poverty eradication, building or strengthening democratic institutions, promotion of foreign direct investment and market access. So that, I think there was another statement that actually referred to reparations more specifically. Well, there are a number of statements for me perusing the document, um, and I didn't have a lot of time to do it, but uh, that refers to uh, financial resources that should be allocated to uh, mm-hmm. to right these wrongs and to address the uh, the after effects of uh, of our en- enslavement. And of course, it wasn't just enslavement in this country. I mean, enslavement, and then the post men and Jim Crow and and just the whole way that slavery has morphed into the prison industrial comp- complex right now. So they have uh, really talked about the financial resources that countries should allocate to address these things. So mm-hmm. now that we're talking, I mean, I think it's important that these things are brought up in these democratic debates when they're talking about uh, uh, whether we should have reparations or not, that's already been established. And, but people don't know because I will say this, Jamoke, when we came back, we got back because uh, I took my daughter. My daughter and I, I think we got back on September 10th, 2001. Mm-hmm. I know the mm-hmm. next day was September 11th, 2001. Yes. And all of our follow-up plans were really, really shut down because nobody could say anything against the government and or that could be construed to be against the government and um mm-hmm. it was it was a really uh kind of um, precarious time for uh uh people that were um involved in 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 the struggle uh, not because we had anything to do with that but it was just there was kind of a blanket Kind of um, everybody's supposed to get in lockstep with uh, uh, with being supportive of the United States government after nine eleven. I'll just put it like right. that. Right. Right. So, yeah. Um, and I was I was sitting here thinking about whether I wanted to go into that or not, and I'm glad you did bring it up. You know, some of the politics that happened, I guess, during the conference against racism. You know, that at first the United States was going to send a high level delegation with um, Colin Powell leading it, and then they changed their mind and said they're going to send a low-level delegation, right? Mm-hmm. And then, and then at, at a, and after, I think it was after, what, the first or second day, the United States, along with Israel, pulled out and just took the delegation that they did send out altogether from participating in the United Nations World Conference Against Racism. And even subsequent um, follow-up meetings, the United States just boycotted it. It was really interesting that under... Um, Barack Obama's presidency that he actually um, boycotted the follow-up meetings to the World Conference Against Racism that was held right in um, one was held right in New York, and so yeah, he, he and, and, and you're right though, yeah, and you're right that the the you know we talk about what happened because there was a lot of momentum around the world around how you know around this victory in Durban and 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 our issue like you said coming being internationally recognized and slavery and racism and everything. And then 
you know, shortly after, like literally yeah, a few days because the conference ended on the 8th, some people didn't even get back to the 9th or 10th, and then 9-11 happened, which really um, uh, shifted the whole energy in this country around, like you said, patriotism and everything, and, and, yeah, and, and really short-circuited the energy and the momentum of the World Conference Against Racism. Mm-hmm, because we came back all prepared to hit the ground running with uh, letting our people know that the world body had agreed that we were entitled to reparations and all that. And then we were really kind of shut down uh, mm-hmm. after that. Uh, for well, um, mm-hmm. Go ahead. For, for, I was just going to say for, for, those, for those reasons, but... Uh, we we did uh, we still had a, a follow up conference for African descendants uh, the following year in Barbados, where mm-hmm. uh, we attempted to uh, when well, we a- attempted to uh, pull our agenda back together and uh, and do some strategic planning for how we were going to proceed uh, following the conference and. Um, and I, I was one of the conveners of that conference in, in Barbados, and out of that came the Global African Conference, so which is still uh, in existence today, but um, there were a lot of factors that made that conference less effective than it could have been or, or should have been, and, um, uh, and, and, there were some people there that did not want that to succeed, <laughs> and they mm-hmm. really had had an effect. So, uh, so anyway, aluta continua. I'll just say that. The well, we got to talk continue. about the Global African Congress a little bit more, going a little more in depth with that because that was very significant. I just wanted to put in two other short pieces in the conversation because actually there were several things that that was a follow-up to what happened in Durban because in 2002 was the millions for reparations which we've talked which we talked about on on our previous show the millions Mm -hmm. for reparations which happened in Washington DC was 2002 um, on Marcus Garvey's birthday on on August the 17th in Washington DC right and that was a yeah, that was somewhat of a follow-up um, to the um, Durban Conference, right? And, uh-huh. and as well as 2003, the next year, there was a major reparations rally in, at the United Nations following up uh-huh. on what had happened in Durban as well. Right, so I just uh-huh. wanted to put those two points in. And now I want to go back to talking about the Global African Congress because that was also a very significant uh, I think still historical or milestone or historical part of our movement that many people don't know about. So, uh, and you, you mentioned mm-hmm. it, but I want to unpack it a little bit more. What we're talking about is that all of the the people of color nations <laughs> around the world were invited to convene ourselves to see where do we, how do we continue to move forward on what happened in Durban mm-hmm. and, and not in just black countries. It wasn't just countries of color. I mean, it was all the okay. countries where we reside. Okay. But it was primarily called for people of African descent, right? People of, it was, yes, it was, it was a conference. It was the African and African descendants um, follow-up to the World Conference Against Racism. Right, right. And, 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 
and so you had thousands of people, right, that came to the first one convening that was in Barbados, right? Oh, it wasn't thousands of people. I would say hundreds of people. Hundreds of people. It was several hundred people. Several hundred people. Okay. Mm-hmm. So why don't you share that a little story a little bit more with with us? Well, um, it was it, it was it was my idea that we needed to talk some more as a people as to what we wanted to get out of, get out of this and garner uh, from uh, really our, our our the success that we had at in Durban at at the conference and that we needed to dialogue some more we needed to strategize some more so I got with. Um, David Kamashang of Barbados, and was, who was the United Nations uh, delegate, the governmental delegate from Barbados to the United Nations, and I had met him in Geneva and again in Durban, and I was talking to him about the need for us to convene a conference of African people to really discuss what our issues were and how we were going to follow up on, on this conference. So. He actually offered to host the conference in Barbados. I said, "Well, that's that's great. I mean, we ran into you know a number of challenges uh, financially and everything else, but we were in the end able to pull off this conference. And people came from countries all around from all around the world, even from European countries and whatnot. But uh, part of what when you, when you read about the Barbados conference, the thing that stood out was the Delegation from the UK, from Great Britain, England, whatever you want to call it, uh, stood up and made a resolution that all the white people should leave the conference because there were uh, white people there from, even though it was African descendant follow up, there were uh, white people there. They even wanted the translators to leave, which was crazy. But uh, there were also people there. Uh, some people were uh, married to white people and their spouses were there. And then there were some people that had come from different countries. And it was particularly troubling for Latin America where they have different designations for uh, for people of color. And, for instance, well, in the United States, you have a drop of black blood, you're considered black. But in other countries of the world, you're considered mulatto or mestizo and all that kind of thing. So it just really got into a lot of, I'll I'll say mess, okay, to just cut to the chase. (laughs) And we weren't Mm -hmm. sure that the people that proposed this had our best interest at heart. Um, And we know that whenever we, uh, the progressive movement, Throughout the the decades and the centuries, we've always struggled with infiltration and saboteurs and provocateurs, and so they were out in full form uh, at this conference, and so it was challenging. But we did break down into the different groups uh, for uh, healthcare and uh, economics and media, and and came up with programs, but we weren't able to follow through on it as best. Um, in the most ideal way. But what we did do is we developed a Global African Com- Congress, which persists to this day and uh, is, uh, I'm going to say, is is a not really tightly linked uh, organization, but it's a dialogue with people from different countries. And um, I think uh, probably because of David Kamashang's, uh influence that with uh, CARICOM, 
they've done a lot, which is the Caribbean uh, equivalent of the African Union or uh, European Union or whatever, CARICOM, uh, for the Caribbean. And, and they've uh, been very active in pursuing some of the goals and objectives that we developed at the, at the Barbados Conference. Mm-hmm. But the follow-up hasn't been as uh, energetic as, uh, as as it might have been. Well, one of the things I think that should also be highlighted about the World Conference Against Racism and the, the preparation and what happened after was that, you know, for many people, there was a, one, it was a time where people uh, did a lot of linking up, you know, like many people didn't know about, or, you know, some, I don't say many people because people are activists would know, but people, you know, to actually talk to, you know, say people in the United States to actually talk to African descendants in Colombia or, you know. That was a real eye-opener, Jamoke. I yeah. am so glad you're mm-hmm. mentioning that because mm-hmm. we didn't know where we all were. And I actually, yeah. back then, I had no idea there were 25 million people of African descent in Colombia and Uruguay, right, right. it wasn't and that Brazil had the largest number of black people outside of the continent, and that um, that we were all dispersed throughout South America, not just the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. It's my understanding right. that only 12% or something like that of the slave trade actually came to the United States, and the majority mm-hmm. of, uh, of the kidnapped uh, Africans that were enslaved were taken to... Um, the Caribbean and Latin America. So mm-hmm. we just didn't even know that we were all dispersed all over. I mean, people in this country weren't aware of how many of us were mm-hmm. even in the the Western Hemisphere. So it was a real eye-opener in that way. Mm-hmm. And, and then to find out that we shared common problems of racism and discrimination and being marginalized mm-hmm. and sidelined and all that kind of thing. So... It, it was it was really an eye opener. It really was, and it really did forge bonds of solidarity with black people uh, all over the world. And I just want to talk about another highlight in the time that we have left. Uh, I I really wanted to see Fidel Castro speak to address the United Nations, and I wasn't able to get in, and I was so disappointed. And one of the brothers from uh, Bermuda, uh, a brother named Paolo, he's since passed on, but didn't join the ancestors. But anyway, he says, don't worry. Fidel always talks to the people. And sure enough, a few hours later, Fidel made a speech in front of all 12 or 8, 10, 12,000 people from the NGO conference, and he spoke about four hours, and it was riveting. It was just Are you talking about in Durban? In Durban, yes, in Durban. Wow, it was, wow. That was the okay, high point. Mean, that was the most wow, exciting point. Awesome. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. Fidel addresses. He talked about three or four hours, and I just remember him saying that this system of capitalism is unsustainable. It cannot be sustained, mm-hmm. and we are mm-hmm. really, really seeing that now. And that was another mm-hmm. point that December 12th was was, was making is that we were brought here for economic reasons. And, exactly. and have been exploited economically. And that was mm-hmm. another point that they made. And the other point that I want to make is that when we talked about reparations, we gained some clarity as to what we were talking about. We This is not in like an income tax refund check, okay? Right. Because, right. Uh, and I always make the point that 
It doesn't need to be that because with the mindset of some of our people, you know, the powers that be could have the weekend reparation sale and get the whole check back <laughs> in the in the weekend, okay? <laughs> I'll say that's true of everybody. But um but anyway, what we are talking about was the uh funding that we need to uh for the for the development, the education and the upliftment of our people as a race. So in other words, we need, and I will actually look at the, uh, what I wrote in the chapter in, in the uh, back of my book. We we need money for economic development, for business development, for education, for all these wraparound services in the schools that our people need. Mental health, uh, uh, really important men- mental health support and treatment for our people that mm-hmm. have the, as Joy uh, Joy DeGroote puts it, the post traumatic slave syndrome. So we need mm-hmm. uh, we need health care. We need uh, health care, mental health care, economic development, um, uh, uh, reentry programs for our uh, brothers and sisters coming out of the uh, penitentiaries. Um, we need you go down the list. So this is what we're talking about with reparations. We're not talking about, uh, although some people have said that we're entitled to to get a check, and I'm not saying that can't be a part of it. But that's definitely not going to the, – uh, the main focus is repair of the damage. Mm-hmm. Reparation is mm-hmm. the root of that is repair. And that's so right. uh, we want to repair the, uh, the the damage that has been done to our people uh, o- over time. So, yeah, so we need drug and al- alcohol rehab. We need – you know, with our, our women, uh, mothers, young mothers dying in childbirth and – at, at preposterous rates, we need uh, maternal child health programs. Uh, we need training programs to uh, bring our numbers up in in law and the health professions and uh, uh, technical fields and and everything else. Uh, cultural competency uh, training for people to deal with us. So there's just a whole uh, list of things I've. Uh, laid out in my chapter, Should America Pay, the things that the the healthcare priorities to use the reparations funding for. Um, and, of course, healthcare really touches upon everything uh, because it has to do with uh, environmental justice. Mm-hmm. Dr. Jewel? Near us. Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. You, you, you went out for a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. I, yeah. I was talking about um, environmental injustices. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call environmental justice as environmental injustice. Yeah. So those yeah. are just all the things that are that, uh, uh, in a nutshell, uh, some of the things that we need uh, reparations funding for. Yeah, and and I just and and I and I will want to big uh, uh, you up in in the because in the book. Should America Pay is one of, I think it's only only two chapters that I remember, and I could be wrong, but there was only two chapters, a chapter on health and a chapter on education, that actually gave some real specifics of what could be done. And I know even with education, I think she even put dollar amounts by those um, things, you know, that, that she felt um, the sister wrote the chapter on, on education. 
that could be used. So that's very important as we move right, closer right. to reparations. As you've said a couple of times on this call, we're getting closer than we've ever been. And one of the challenges that, that's on our plate, in my opinion, the reparations movement is to really begin to come up with a detailed plan of mm-hmm. action, which actually right, looks at, right, you know, right. what was the harm? How can the harm right. be addressed? What are institutions and, we have already okay, in let, me, let me just say this. I just want to yeah. say this before we end because this is one of the most important things is land. You know, we've land, been disenfranchised from our land. So we need definitely. land for agriculture and affordable housing. Our people are mm-hmm. homeless and, you know, the, mm-hmm. the affordable housing problem is, is, is major in this country. So, uh, so those are some of the important things that we need money for. Like one of the brothers said in, in uh, Barbados conference, he said, we need money. We need money. <laughs> he got up on the microphone. He just said, we need money. You know, white man needs to pay. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, we need money. Yes, yes. And also, um, before we close, um, when we, we're talking about follow-up to what happened in Derby, one of the things that was also a follow-up, and we've talked about on previous shows also, is the International Decade for People of African Descent which unfortunately we're, in my opinion, not doing nearly enough of what we could be doing in the United States around that. Some other countries are doing more than others. However, I think in general we have not really um, utilized this uh, decade in the way that uh, it could be utilized in terms of the international decade for people of African descent. And then in the international decade for people of African descent, there was a, uh, there's a program of action, and that program of action refers back to the Durban program of action and talks about uh, reparations. It talks about apologies. It talks about, you know, righting the wrongs and economic uh, justice um, for um, people of African descent in different countries. And so, again, that was another um, thing that came out of the activism and organizing that continued after Durban was to get to the nation of the international uh, decade. Sure. Do you want to tell the audience? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 2015, yeah. it started 2015, January 1st, 2015 through December 31st, 2024. So we're okay. like midway so we, in now. We're like five years in now. Okay, so we're about yeah. halfway through. Mm-hmm. We still got some time. Halfway. We still got some time. But, uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, so definitely also that's another um, uh, um, what should I say? Um, something that came out of mm-hmm. yeah. I was saying it was that's something else that's, that's connected to to World Conference Against Racism okay, was this okay. declaration mm-hmm, that came out of yeah, um, yeah. out of that out of that um, conference as well. This international yeah, so we, so, yeah. we definitely mm-hmm. need to talk that up some more. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. All right, so we we are at the close of our show. Um, why don't we play the last clip? It's a, a short, again, a short clip from the movie Durban 400, and then I, and you can give us some closing remarks, and I'll close this out. Well, I just want to thank you for having me, Jamoke, and I must say that you have been in the vanguard of leadership of Encobra for some time, and um, we appreciate your uh, your tenacity, your persistence, and your leadership. Uh, in this arena, and it's going to pay off. It's it's going to. Uh, we will have our reparations, maybe sooner mm-hmm. than you think. 
So, uh, so uh, we we definitely, as uh, Dr. King said, he said he's been to the mountaintop and he's seen us. You know, I forget the words of his speech, but um, but I I am confident that um, that we as, as a people uh, will be compensated for the things that have happened to us, mm-hmm. and that uh, and that we. Yes, and that and that we and as we say, uh, you know, civil rights people say we shall overcome, and then uh, some of the more progressives say, "Venceremos, we will win," and a luta continua. So I'll leave it at that. The public is saying, reparations now." The public announcement says, "Treat the land by any means necessary." Treat the land. Yep. All that. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we'll continue working on raising the consciousness of our people on the awareness mm-hmm. and uh, moving towards uh, 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 receiving the, the reparations and compensation that we are due, just uh, working to achieve justice. Get them in, get them in. That sun is hot and plenty bright. Let's get out of business and get home tonight, Peter Man. It was a crime. France has taken a position that they agree with their parliament that the transatlantic slave trade is a crime against humanity. So you're saying that no African workers law on the farms now have been thrown off of their land. Racism is the issue and it's economic. Despite the tactics to split off African people against African people in their classic uh, maneuvering of the process, the African group are holding strong on our position. As I said when you asked the first trick question. Uh, the thrust for reparations and getting it on the international uh, arena and on the international stage has just been phenomenal. I am originally from Puerto Rico. Most of us don't know that there is 150 million blacks in Latin America. We are making our own declaration about a worldwide reparations movement. This is going to go down to the last minute. No, we won't renounce the debt. America bounced the check. And no, it ain't all about the dough, but my people still pull reparations and tools, so just give me what you owe. No, we won't renounce the debt. America bounced the check. And no, it ain't all about the dough, but my people still pull reparations and tools, so just give me what you owe. Capitalists are the enemy, but we get treated like the villain when prison is homicide, cause they making a killing. And war generates more loot, so that's why Bush is going off. Half cocked like Joey Butterfuco, he don't care about jobs. It seems so. I gotta use my pen to get money like an ATM machine. The economy is at its lowest by far. So, the black man gotta work hard like Mel Porno Star. 